Whether due to cultural opposition, sins and weaknesses within the body of Christ, or the routine daily struggles that come with following Jesus, it's easy to forget the amazing privilege God has given to the church. No other institution or organization can claim to have Christ as its head. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more free gospel-centered resources over at our website, Radical.net. Well, in today's new message from Ephesians chapter 1, David Platt highlights the significance of the church's relationship to Christ and its role in proclaiming His salvation. As we commit to Christ and to one another in the context of the local church, we put the glory of Christ on display. Here's David Platt with his sermon on what it means to be a biblical church from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. If you have a Bible, uh, I hope you or somebody around you does, uh, let me invite you to open with me to Ephesians chapter 1. So Ephesians chapter 1, while you're turning there, uh, yeah, I just want you to know how thankful I am for the opportunity to be here in person instead of just on a screen. Uh, the only thing that's a little unfortunate is I'm, uh, so I just got back from Ethiopia earlier this week and I, I brought something back from Ethiopia with me. So I'm a little, little, uh, under the weather. So you probably wish I was on a screen right now instead of in person, but, uh, here I am. So, uh, I've really been looking forward to the opportunity just to be face to face with you all. I certainly have heard all kinds of stories of God's grace and this campus specifically ever since it started and then continuing even now um, in all kinds of different ways as Justin shares about what he's doing in specific people's lives and uh, just periodically asking him, just give me a, a glimpse of, of what God's doing in this person or that person's life and for him to share just stories of God's grace in you all and the community here and so to have an opportunity to dive into God's word specifically with you as we kind of come to the end of this uh, series we've been walking through on biblical traits of a church. So what I want to start by doing today is I want to uh, I want to test you here at Loudon. I want to see how how well you followed along with these twelve traits of a biblical church. So. Um, we're going to see, I, I thought about asking, like, putting Justin on the spot, saying, all right, what are the 12, and just seeing how many he can rattle off, or asking, but I, we'll do this community together. So let's see, a little audience participation, what, I, what traits of a church that we can identify together. So we've just spent the first part of this year basically walking through 12 traits of a biblical church. So just saying in the word, okay, we don't, we don't do church According to our thoughts, trends in our day, our opinions, we do church according to the way God has defined church. So we've walked through 12 traits of a church according to God in his word. So I want to see if we can remember what uh, those traits are we've walked through. So just just kind of call out different ones. So just one at a time. All right, so who, who can name a biblical trait of a church? Prayer. Oh, that's a great one to start with. All right, prayer. So the church is designed by God to, to be dependent on God. We, we ask God to do in and among us what only God can do. All right, prayer. All right. 
leadership, all right? So uh, biblical leadership, pastors, elders, overseers. We talked about how uh, biblical church has a plurality of pastors, uh, not just one person, but a multitude of of pastors, elders, overseers, and then deacons or deaconesses uh, who are serving in all kinds of different ways in the church, all right? Prayer, leadership, somebody else said something. Okay, I heard two there. All right, so expository preaching. Remember, I don't know if you remember that Sunday. We not not to be confused with suppository preaching, uh, but expository preaching. The whole purpose. So biblical preaching and teaching. Uh, the whole purpose. If you weren't if you weren't here on that Sunday, there's a story behind that. But uh, anyway, uh, oh, but I'm not going to go into it. I'm just going to leave you lingering with what what did, why did he just say suppository in a sermon? So, uh, but biblical teaching and preaching. So the I mean, this really I would say is kind of the first trait of a church because everything else flows from this: the teaching and preaching of the Bible. It forms us as a church. And then somebody mentioned mission. So last week we looked at from Ethiopia. As I was uh, standing in uh, uh, blazing sun on top of a building, uh, and just a little side note, I, I'm usually pretty tied to uh, a sermon manuscript that I have on my iPad in front of me. Well, about 10 minutes into that sermon, I look down at my notes, and it's, it's saying, emergency, your iPad is overheating. And so it was, it was done. So after that, I was like, all right. Spirit help me, and so uh, so I didn't have any any help here. Uh, a lot of help there. So uh, so anyway, we talked about mission, how the church exists not just to make disciples right where we live, but to make disciples of all the nations. And uh, so the local church exists for the accomplishment of global mission. All right, so that's four. Uh, what's another one? Worship. Oh, good. What we gather together to do today, we gather together regularly, weekly, to glorify God together with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs that we sing to one another, praying, studying the word. All right, that's five. Giving, all right, giving, something we just did. So we, we give of our resources for the spread of the gospel, the building up of the church. So we are faithful to give. Somebody else mentioned discipleship. So we, we grow together in Christ. One of the sentences we, we talked about with the discipleship is we, we, together, we learn and obey the Bible personally and in small and large group communities. So just want to encourage every part of the church to, uh, to be in a place where we are learning and obeying the Bible in our own personal lives and then in a large group community like this and then in a smaller group community where we can really hold one another accountable. So, all right, that's seven, I think. Uh, Membership, okay, and then coming from that. So membership, uh, number eight, so biblically, followers of Christ are members of churches. They're parts of churches. First Corinthians chapter 12, like a body has different parts. The church has different parts, and we don't just kind of... We don't just kind of float from one church to the next or church hop or church shop. We commit our lives to a local church where we grow together in Christ. And then somebody mentioned accountability and discipline flowing from that so that we hold one another accountable. We, uh, what we talked about that week in Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 6 is we take responsibility for helping one another grow in holiness. It's part of what it means to love people around us is to help them grow in holiness. So accountability and discipline. All right, we got three more. Ordinances. Ordinances. So as a part of our worship, uh, we regularly participate in the Lord's Supper and then we celebrate salvation in baptism. Those these two visible pictures of the gospel that God has given us in the church. All right, two more. Evangelism. Uh, Evangelism, proclamation of the gospel. So this is really the core. The church is a community of people who know Jesus and proclaim Jesus. We gather together, we sing the gospel, we 
preach the gospel, and then we scatter apart from here. So just a reminder, like our our primary evangelistic strategy, how are, how are we as McLean Bible Church in all kinds of different campuses leading people to Jesus? Well, we, we hope that in a setting like this that people will come to know Christ. I've prayed that the, this morning people who don't know the life of Christ would come into the life of Christ here. But that's not even primary. Primarily, this whole room filled with spirit-filled followers of Christ It's going to scatter around to all kinds of different workplaces, all kinds of different neighborhoods with the gospel proclaiming it wherever we go. That's how the gospel spreads to the church scattering. So biblical evangelism. All right, one more. Fellowship, you got it. So fellowship, all the, think all the one another's we screwed in scripture. Look at their high-fiving in the back. Boom, boom. Uh, uh, so love one another, care for one another, pray for one another, bear with each other. All these one another. So this is why we want to make sure, uh, to Saul's point in that video that we just heard, that we don't just come to church and say hello to each other and then kind of move on with our lives. Like, no, we, we're intended to be in community where we are we're caring for one another, serving one another, building one another up, edifying one another, and like approaching our gathering and our scattering, saying, how can I live for the good of the, the people around me? So these are 12 traits of a biblical church that God has given us in his word. Now, all of that, what I want to do is take all of that and come to two of my favorite verses on the church, about the church, in all the Bible. And those two verses are Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. But we're actually going to start back up in verse uh, 15, because this is a prayer that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus. And it's one of two prayers. So in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians uh, 1, 15 through 23, and then Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. And they're both great prayers uh, that are probably worthy of meditation, memorization in our lives, because they, they really teach us a lot about how to pray for the church. But I want to read this, this first one, Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, and then I want us to camp out, well, I say in the last two verses, we're actually going to be all over Ephesians, but I want you to feel the wonder of these two verses. So as we think about what it means to be a church, and this is why I wanted to be here in person, because I really want us to think together. So yes, we're in different campuses, like what does it mean for us to be the church? And my, part of my hope in this series on traits of a church is that we might capture in a fresh way, maybe even for some for the first time, the wonder of what it means to be a part of the church. This is so different. The kind of community we experience together in this room is so different than any other social club, social setting, anything else in all the universe. This is a uniquely Christ-formed community. And I want us to see the wonder of what that means. So Ephesians 1, let's start in verse 15. Paul, writing this to the church, he says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, what we just sang about, seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And here's these two verses. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Huh. So, so here's what I want to do. I, I want to show you in these couple verses, three, three truths that in many ways summarize uh, all that we've seen over the last six months about what it means to be a church according to the Bible. And, and they're all over the book of Ephesians. So we're going we're gonna to turn to a few different places. But I want you to see and feel, I hope in a fresh way, the wonder of what it means to be a part of the church. So if you're taking notes, here's, here's three realities for us as a church family. So one, we have, what does it mean to be a church family? It means we have been united together by the grace of Christ. This is what separates a church from any other kind of community in the world. We together are united by, by one thing, the grace of Christ. So in verse 22, he talks about the church, who Paul's praying for, and refers to the church as the body of Christ. Now, this is, this is a picture we see all throughout Ephesians. We'll look at it in just a second, where we see this, this people referred to as the body of Christ. But I want us to pause and think, well, how is, how is that possible for a group of sinners to be called the body of Christ? And, and part of the purpose that Paul's doing, what Paul's accomplishing here in this book, is he's saying, together, you're all a part of this body. So the church at Ephesus was made up of both Jews and Gentiles together, and there was actually a lot of conflict and division between them. And so part of the purpose in this letter is to bring them together. You look at the next chapter. Look at chapter 2, verse uh, 14. He starts talking about how Jews and Gentiles have all kinds of differences, but together they, they come to one another in the church through the, as the body of Christ, through the grace of Christ. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, talking about Jesus, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might have created himself one new man in place of the two, so not Jews and Gentiles, one new man, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, there it is, that picture of body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So he's saying, hey, look, together, you are one body. And here's what unites you. Because it's the same thing that unites us in this room. So I imagine there might be Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews in this room, but there's also all kinds of different people from all kinds of different backgrounds and with all kinds of different personalities and you work in different places, live in different places. So what unites us as a church? Well, here's the basis of our unity. See what we once were. Stay here in chapter two. In the very beginning of this chapter, Paul starts describing what we once were, what these Christians once were. He says in verse one, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So how, how's that for what you, unites you? Well, you were all dead in your transgressions and objects of the wrath of God. Talk about misery loves company. Like catch, catch what Paul's saying here. Think about it in this room. We were all once dead in sin. Paul says you had no spiritual life. You were dead spiritually. Now there's not different levels of dead here. You're not kind of dead, more dead, less dead. It's not Jews, you were kind of dead. Gentiles, you were really, really dead. You're, you're just dead, period. Paul says you were all dead in your sins. I, I think about, we were just talking about this. Elijah was talking about this in our, in our worship. I think about funerals I've been a part of for family members, for Church members, for close friends, uh, you know it's a humbling thing to look at, humbling thing to carry like a casket. There's a solemnity, there's a finality there. So brothers and sisters, when, when you think of your spiritual condition before the grace of Christ, this is the picture the Bible gives. You were dead in your sin. You were in the casket. Not sick in your sin. Dead in your sin. Feel the gravity there. Dead in sin. Not just dead in sin. We were living in darkness. The Bible says you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 talks about how our eyes were blinded by the God of this world so that we could not see over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul talks about how we were darkened in our understanding. And in chapter 5, verse 8, he literally says, you were once darkness. It's like Jesus' words in John three twenty: we loved the darkness, we hated the light. We were dead in sin, we were living in darkness. Keep going, we were children of disobedience. He says, you followed the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. So think the picture from the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter three, the serpent tempting Adam and Eve to disobey God, Adam and Eve succumbing to that temptation and disobeying God. And in the words of Romans chapter five, we are all children of Adam. So it's not just that we sinned every once in a while. No, it's our hearts were sin-soaked. Our very nature was disobedient toward God, defiant toward God. Think about, think about the statement, the devil, who is at work in all the evil we see around us in the world, all the immorality and deceit and strife and murder, the spirit who's at work in all those things, we followed him. You think, well, I've not, I've not murdered, I've not done this or that. No, that's, that's maybe the danger our disobedience was far more subtle. It's cloaked in cultural goodness and even religious self-righteousness. In reality, we're chi- we were children of disobedience, captivated by sinful desires. We lived among them, Paul says, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following his desires and thoughts. Paul says in Romans 6 that we were, we were slaves to sin, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. 2 Timothy 2.26 says we're like, it's like we were captive to the devil himself. Dead in sin, living in darkness, children of disobedience, captivated by sinful desire, and ultimately, we were doomed to hell. Objects of the wrath of God. Condemned, Jesus says in John 3.18. An enemy of God, Romans 5.10, James 4.4. The object of eternal wrath. So, brothers and sisters, this is what unites us. This puts all of us on the same plane. Not one of us has advantage over the other. 
We are not unified because of our ethnicity, not just because we live in the same area, have the same socioeconomic status. We're not unified because of the personalities uh, we have are all the same. We have the same tastes or preferences. What unites us is that we are all desperately in need of the grace of God. That's what brings us together as the church. It's what brought us together in the first place. We were all dead in sin, living in darkness, children of disobedience, captivated by sinful desire, doomed to hell. Every single one of us. But, this is the beauty of the book of Ephesians, because you get to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Yes. So think about what he's done. It's here in Ephesians 2. But then now turn back one chapter to Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see this here. Uh, So look at Ephesians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 3. You know, I have so much to learn and discover and grow in, realize more about what it means to know Christ. But, But this one thing I have learned. I have learned to speak of my conversion to Christ in passive terms. Meaning, I did not convert myself to Christ. I couldn't. I was dead. I was in the casket. I was in darkness. I was under wrath, and I wanted to be there, captivated by sinful desire. I I did not convert myself to Christ. I was converted. God did a work in me that I could not do on my own. That's the whole point of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, so he's doing all the action here. He predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us and the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Oh, praise God. Do you see what he has done? Like the whole Trinity is involved in this picture. You're taking notes, follow this. What we once were, all these things, dead in sin, doomed to hell. What did God do? The Father planned our salvation. So... He chose us, he predestined us, he's given it to us. And I want to be clear, brothers and sisters, I can't explain these words. I don't wholly understand these words. I can't fathom all they mean. But the reality scripture teaches here is that God has set his affections on you and me as his sons and daughters. That's what Jesus said to his disciples in John 15. You did not choose me, I chose you. 
Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, we always ought to thank God because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like, think about this. I'm guessing in this room right now there might be some people walking through some challenges, some difficulties, kind of at a, at a low point in a valley in some way. And I just want to remind you this morning, those of you who are in Christ in a fresh way, I just want to remind you, especially that low point, just pause for a second. Let the words of Ephesians 1 just soak in before the sun was ever formed. Before oceans were ever poured out on the land, before mountains were set in their place, before a star ever appeared in the sky, before any of that, God Almighty on high set his sight on your soul. He, from eternity past, purposed to love you. Oh, just be encouraged in a fresh way. The God of the universe, his love for you. He saw you in that casket, dead in sin, and he purposed to say life. So how is that possible? How can a holy God do this? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Father planned our salvation. The Son purchased our salvation. The one he loves, in him we have redemption through his blood. Redemption, the word is to buy or pay the purchase price for. He purchased us with his blood. That's what we sang about just a second ago. And especially if you're not a follower of Christ this morning, like you hear this loud and clear. God loves sinners so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to live the life we couldn't live, a life of perfect obedience to God, not in sin. And then though he had no sin for which to pay, he had no sin for which to die, he chose to die. It's what we've sung about in our place. He died for our sin, for your sin, for my sin. Jesus took all the wrath due us in our sin upon himself. And then the good news keeps getting better because he didn't stay dead for long. He rose from the dead. He conquered sin and the grave. And now anyone, anywhere who, including today, who turns from their sin, says, God, I need you to forgive me of my sin, puts their faith, trust in Jesus as Savior, and Lord will be forgiven of all their sin and reconciled to God for all of eternity. The Son has purchased our salvation. The Father planned it, the Son purchased it, and then the Spirit preserves our salvation. The Spirit opens our eyes to this reality, changes our lives, and then enters our hearts. Don't miss this as a deposit, as a seal that guarantees our inheritance as sons and daughters of God. So Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you, guaranteed eternal redemption. So, and and see, see the purpose in all this. Well, why such grace and mercy? Look at the end of every single person of the Trinity, what they do in salvation. Look in verse six. The Father plans our salvation. Why? Verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace. The Son purchases our salvation. Purchases our salvation. Why? Verse 12, in order that we, who are the first to open Christ, might be the praise of his glory. The Spirit preserves our salvation. Why? End of verse 14. To the praise of his glory. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. We were dead in sin, living in darkness, children of disobedience, captivated by sinful desire, and doomed to hell. God set his affections on us. The Father planned our salvation. The Son purchased our salvation. The Spirit preserves our salvation, all for the glory of his name. Do we we realize what this means? There's a tendency, I think unhealthy, 
sometimes in the church to try and like dramatize uh, a conversion testimony by talking about how bad our circumstances were before we came to Christ, about how we were addicted to drugs and this and that and engrossed and all these things. And if that's your testimony, that's certainly not, not bad. That's, that's your story. But what is not healthy is when other people begin to think their testimonies are boring because they didn't do all that stuff. We almost have this idea like, well, the deeper we went into sin, the more we realize about grace. And there's a sense in which that's true, but at the core, the reality is we are all on the same plane here. We were all dead in sin, doomed to hell, every single one of us, and by God's grace, he saved us, brought us to life. Now, you can't get any more dramatic than that. You were in a casket spiritually. And regardless of whether you were 8 or 18 or 80 years old, you had nothing in you that called out to God. You were destined to be separated from him forever. He reached out his hand into your heart, opened up your eyes, transformed your life, so that now you are free from sin and alive to God forever. There is nothing boring about that. We are united together by the grace of Christ. So now, now, catch the implications here. So back to verse 22 in Ephesians 1. We are now his body. We're the body of Christ. Verse 22, verse 23. And you see this over and over and over again. You might just make notes in your Bible or kind of underline. Look at chapter 2, verse uh, 16, he says, we might, uh, God recon- Jesus might reconcile us both to God in one body. Then you get to chapter 3, verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. Chapter 4, verse 4, there's one body and one spirit. Chapter 4, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with his, with his it's equipped when each part is working properly makes the body gross that it builds itself up in love. Verse 25, therefore having put away falsehood let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another in this body. Then you get to chapter 5 verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church his body and is himself its savior. You get down to verse 30 in chapter 5 because we are members of his body. You see it over and over and over again like Do you realize this? Just right where you're sitting. Christian, you are part of a member of the body of Jesus Christ. You who deserve to be separated from God forever in all your sin, you are now a part of the body of Jesus Christ. What a picture of, what a powerful picture of unity that comes together in the church. We're now his body. And, and you know, we're now his body. Then, then you, just a couple other pictures you see. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. He says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we're his body, we're his building, this whole picture of we're like a structure together. Not talking about a physical building, but a, a structure, a household, like a family. And then we're his bride. This is Ephesians chapter five, we just read it. 
real quickly, we're called the bride of Christ. Ah, you realize this? Huh. It's good to be a part of the church, isn't it? The body of Christ, the building of Christ, the household of God, the bride of Jesus Christ. I got to think about my wife, my bride, how much joy and pleasure I find in my bride. And I think this is how God describes us. This is how Jesus looks at us as a bride who he loves and cherishes and treasures. This is what unites us together because none of us could, could be a part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ on our own. It's all by the grace of Christ, which then leads to, okay, so second realization here for us as a church, according to the Bible, we've been united together by the grace of Christ and then we've been filled with the power of Christ. Now, I was about to say this where it gets really good, but it's already been really good, but it gets even better. So we are his body, verse 23 says, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, that word fullness uh, occurs four times in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 10, right before this, here, then chapter 3, verse 19, and chapter 4, verse 13. We won't look at all of those. What does it mean, think about this, what does it mean for the church to be the fullness of Christ, him who fills all in all? You've got to pay attention close here because this is simple, but it is glorious. So follow the line of thought here. What Paul's saying is, leading up to this statement in verse 23 and the prayer before this. First, he's saying Christ has all authority. He has all authority. So the, the whole picture leading up to this is... Paul giving us a glimpse of the authority of Jesus. Starting all the way back in verse 19, Paul starts talking about uh, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. And then he starts to give us the picture of Jesus. So follow this. So who is Jesus? He is, and Paul says he's the risen savior. He's raised from the dead. Not only the risen Savior, he's the exalted Lord. He's seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all power and dominion. Christ is superior to everyone, everything. He's far above every title, that could, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So any title that could ever, ever be given, Jesus is over all of them. He's the risen Lord, he's the risen Savior, he's the exalted Lord, and he's the sovereign king who reigns over all things. This is awesome thought, like everything in this world right now, everything going on in the United States, you pull up your news app, you start flipping through, Jesus is king over everything that's going on in every country in the world. Kim Jong-un, North Korea is not not king. Jesus is king over him, he holds Kim Jong-un in the palm of his hand. Same thing with Donald Trump. Same thing with every world leader. He's sovereign over everything going on in Iran, everything going on in Ethiopia where we just were. Jesus has all authority over everything. Now what's interesting here though is in verse 23, Paul doesn't say that Jesus is head over the church. It's not what he says. Now we know he is. I mean, that's part of the imagery of him being head of the church. We know he's Lord over us, but that's not what Paul's emphasizing here. Follow this. In verse 22 and 23, it says, God put all things under Jesus' feet 
and gave him as head over all things to the church. So the language here is something God is giving to the church. So God has given, follow this, all authority to Christ, and then he's given Christ to who? To the church. Like it's a gift to the church. This is amazing. Follow this. So Christ has all authority, and the church has the fullness of Christ. Christ fills us. Pluroo is the word there. It means to fill something completely. So don't miss it. The church has the fullness of Christ. It's the same thing Paul says later, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. He says, in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. So we as the church, follow this, possess all of Christ. So put those two together then. You realize what this means. So brothers and sisters in Christ, like if Jesus, Christ has all authority and the church is filled with the fullness of Christ, then all the authority and all the earth belongs to who? To the church. Huh. Are you, are you catching this? Jesus has all authority and he shares that with us. Now, what what does that mean? Well, think about it. All that Jesus has, we share in. We share in his resurrection. That's what we just sang about. That's what Ephesians 2, 6 says. We are seated with Jesus in the heavenlies. He has given us his life, his eternal life, his resurrection. Everything Christ has is ours. So I've used the illustration before of, uh, so I mentioned my bride earlier, and Heather and I, when we were preparing to get married and she was older than me and she was and is older than me, still is, will always be older than me. But uh, she graduated college before I did, uh, which meant uh, the last year before we were married, I was still in college. She was out of college. She had gotten a job, was making money, had income. I was still in college, was not making money, had no income, eating a lot of ramen noodles for every single meal. And so uh, when we, after that year, she was teaching all these, uh, these preschool kids that uh, she, she had a job teaching. So we stand together at the front of that church on that day and we unite our lives together. And there were so many wonderful things I received on that day, most importantly being a beautiful, godly wife. But you know what else I received on that day? Income. <laughs> Like, it was awesome. Like one minute, I had no cash flow. I said two words, and I now had cash flow. I, I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to go like teach her little snotty nosed kids. Like I didn't have to do anything. Simply by the fact that my life was united with hers, everything that belonged to her now belong to me. So uh, just like that. So this is what I want you to see. So in a much, so, yeah, uh, in a much, much greater way. Church, like we are united with Jesus Christ and everything that he has, his righteousness, his holiness, his redemption, his power, his authority belongs to us. This is breathtaking when you think about it. So contrary to the popular ideas in our culture, and maybe sadly even in the church, the church is not weak. The church is not frail. 
fragile, stagnant, struggling. The church has the fullness of Jesus Christ. And it's time for us as the church to realize the fullness of who we are and what we have in Christ. In our lives, in our life together, in our lives personally, that we have nothing to fear. Those of you who are held captive to fear in all kinds of ways, you don't have anything to fear. We have the fullness of Jesus Christ. We are not powerless before sin. We have power over sin. We do not shrink back from challenges and mission here and around the world. We face them boldly because we know how this story is going to end. Our leader is head over all and he has said, my resources, everything I have is at your disposal in your life and your life together in the church. We, we say this every week when we commission one another out with the great commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is saying that, and Paul's saying it, so make the connection with Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. He's, God has given, us, given Jesus all authority as a gift to the church. Huh. That then leads right into the third realization where you've united by the grace of Christ, we've been filled with the power of Christ, and we are now a display of the glory of Christ. So this is the church. Catch this. Now, and then see the connection here between uh, the uh, the authority of Christ, the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Because Jesus has all authority, it's been given to the church. We go out and we proclaim this risen Savior, exalted Lord, sovereign King over all. The purpose of the church, Ephesians 1, 23, says the reason is to fill the earth with his glory. We are, so follow this, we're his fullness God displaying the fullness of Jesus through us. It's what we see all over scripture. God desires to fill the earth with his glory. Jesus, when he was on the earth, John 1, 14, was a demonstration of the glory of God. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. But now, so follow this, so God showed his glory fully in Jesus, in the flesh. But then Jesus left He's not on the earth right now. He ascended into heaven. He's at the Father's right hand. So how is God going to display the glory of Christ in the world when Christ is at his right hand? So follow this. God brings the people together by his grace, fills them with his fullness, and by the power of Christ, they display the character and the love and the power and the mercy and the glory of Christ to the world around them. Follow this. God's design is to use the body of his, shine, of his son to show the glory of his son to all creation. Do you realize what we're a part of? And we're a part of this divine plan to show the world the fullness of Christ in our community with one another. This is, look at, turn one other place in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter three, verse 10. This is breathtaking. Listen to this. Well, start, start in verse eight, just to get the context. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So follow this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Did you hear that? God intends through the church, through our community with each other, to display 
his wisdom. What does that mean? It means his, his plan of salvation, his glory in the salvation of sinners, just like we saw earlier. Father plan, son purchase, spirit preserves, <coughs> all for his glory. So God's intent is to display his wisdom, his plan of salvation, his glory to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Those, those are words that are used in scripture to describe angelic beings. That includes heavenly angels. One author said, God is educating the angels by the means of the church. But not just heavenly angels. Look over, all right, I we would only look at one other place, but one other place. Ephesians chapter six, verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Oh, think about this. It will take your breath away if you do. Like God is saying, not just to the angels of heaven, but to the very demons of hell, I'm gonna show you my glory. And follow this. How is God gonna show his glory in the supernatural realm? God says, I'm gonna take David Platt and Justin Orr and Saul Barkett and Mary Beth Alford and Anthony Giapong and Rudy Finner and Jennifer Bittenbender and Ben Munoz and Katie Hessen and Tim Smith and Matt Broderick and all these brothers and sisters in Loudoun County, I'm going to take all of them and their spiritual deadness, objects of my wrath. I'm going to transform them as objects of my affection. I'm going to bring them to life. I'm going to cleanse them of all their sin. I'm going to raise them up, seat them with Christ in the heavenlies where they're going to reign with him. And for all of eternity, their lives will be a pronouncement to the hosts of heaven and the devils of hell that God is glorious. And God is gracious, and God is merciful, and God is worthy of the praise of all the peoples of the earth. This is what God is doing that we're a part of. God, God says in his design, look at the church and you will see my son. This is his body. And this is why, brothers and sisters, it is critical that we commit ourselves to the church and to being the church according to God's design. You might think, well, can't I display God's glory on my own? And yes, there's a sense in which we're all intended in every facet of our lives to display the glory of God in everything we do. But the message, the clear message of Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 is that God's glory is most clearly displayed not through, follow this, God's glory is most clearly displayed not through you or me, but through us. Not through you or me. Kind of hopping and jumping around and and doing life on but through us experiencing Christ-centered community together through his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. God holds up the church and he says to heaven and hell, this is the glory of my son. Look how I chose her, how I care for her, how I teach her, how I suffered for her, how I died for her, rose for her, reigning for her, how I've called her and justified her and cleansed her, and how I will keep her and glorify her and satisfy her forever with myself. Paul Tripp said, your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse and good kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively shaping them into his likeness, and he wants you to be a part of it. That's what it means to be a part of his church, to be a part of this master plan of God to rescue men and women from their sin, transform their lives. God is redeeming people for his glory. This is why we want to be as McLean Bible Church all across this area. 
We want to be the church God has called and created and commanded us to be. Not just coming, sitting in a seat. We want to experience the fullness of Christ. Not just in our lives, not just our families, but in our family together in the church. United by his grace, filled with his power, and living week after week after week as a display of his glory in Loudoun County and wherever God may lead us. Let's pray. Oh God, I, I, I knew I was going to preach this morning, but I am in a fresh way even right now just overwhelmed by the wonder of what it means to be a part of your body and a part of this body specifically. Just thank you for the grace that unites us in this room. Thank you for filling us with all the fullness of Christ. Help us to live in that. Individually and together as a church, help us to live in that. And God, in the process, please, please, please use us as a display of your glory. In this community, God, please, God, that others might know your love and your grace and your mercy, that others might be brought from death to life through our community with each other. Please use us, form us, make us the church you want us to be, that we might be a display of your glory to more and more and more people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. Don't forget that you can watch hundreds of other sermons, download study guides and discussion questions for each of those sermons, watch interviews, read articles, listen to other podcasts, all for free at Radical.net. We are so grateful for our community of listeners who have left us a review on iTunes. We're so grateful because it helps us get the word out about this podcast. And so if you have found it helpful, would you consider leaving us a review as well? It only takes a few moments, but is a great help to us. And one more note, if you are in the Washington, D.C. area and would like to hear David in person, make plans to visit McLean Bible Church, where David serves as teaching pastor. You can learn more about McLean and find a campus near you at mcleanbible.org. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen, and until next time, join us over at Radical.net.